Welcome back, everybody. I'm Sequoia, and this is Diversity Be Like. I am here with my new friend, Tristan Norman. Tristan is a head of creative insights for the Americas at Getty Images. In this role, she operates as one part visual anthropologist and two parts data scientist, working across disciplines to understand what motivates visual selection, identified trends within visual language, and using this data to help shape the development of Getty's creative content globally. Welcome, Mm -hmm. Tristan. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. I'm super excited because we both work in the world of stock imagery. So it's fun. I feel like I'm talking talking to myself, (laughs) kind of. (laughs) It's always so mysterious for so many people. They're like, what is this? What do you do? I I still don't think my mom can explain my job to anyone. (laughs) But she's proud and that's all that matters. My mom tells everybody about Mocha Stock and she's just like, you should just go buy it. It's like, mom, that's not how this works. Yeah, but she's, parents are so supportive. I love it. Yeah. So let's break down what you do. Tell us a little bit about what all of that means. For sure. I mean, there's just a lot of words in that whole title that I have. But essentially, I spent a lot of my time getting really familiar with the content that our customers, our partners are really engaging with. So thinking about what sort of uh, still imagery they're gravitating toward, what sort of illustrations they're gravitating toward, what video they're gravitating toward, identifying patterns within that. Like, so are there some common themes in this sort of scenarios that are appearing in that sort of content? Are there some common themes around the aesthetics, the way those things look, right? Who are actually being included in the center of the images that they're choosing and who are being excluded, Mm -hmm. right? And then looking at also what they're searching for and so how that kind of lines up to what they're actually engaging with. Is there a disconnect? Is it in line? And then putting that into context with the wider world. So thinking about pop culture, thinking about how video, I'm sorry, film and television, fine art is moving sort of visually and that visual vocabulary is coming out in those spaces, thinking about the news and a global pandemic and how that's going to affect how we interact and engage with visual content, thinking about consumer behavior and social media and what's really resonating on TikTok and Instagram and all of those things and any sort of secondary research to make, provide a container for our understanding of how these trends actually are moving through our world and so that people can understand what's going to be new and next in our visual content. Nice. So I love that because that is very similar to what I do, only I don't have all the tools that Getty has yet, Um, but one day, one day. Um, I believe in it. (laughs) Thank you. So it's funny when we talk about this, because like you said a minute ago, how do people even define it, right? Like Mm -hmm. the people in our lives. I remember growing up and you'd hear, oh, go out and be a doctor and be a lawyer and and be a teacher or own a a store. How did you even learn about this? How did you fall into it? How did you, what set you off on this path? I don't really know, to be honest. I feel like I stumbled into this by accident and I'm still surprised that (laughs) someone let me in here to to be boss of some stuff. But (laughs) when I was in undergrad, I studied, well, 
I changed my major quite a bit. I went to college around the time where like in the middle of my college experience, uh, the Great Recession was mm, happening. Mm-hmm. So I was watching a lot of my older friends graduate. I was about like, two years off from graduating and watching them not be able to get jobs and mm-hmm. not be able be pay off, get ready onto that path of paying off their student loans and things right. like that. I had started as a comms major when I was in an undergrad. I wanted to be like a PR girl. Like that was like what my dream was. I don't okay. know why, but um, then I moved. I was like, I needed to get a job that pays some bills because I don't have a safety net. And so I started looking at business school. And at first I thought I wanted to do finance, but like I mean, like when I think of myself as like being an investment banker, I mean, although I don't know if you've seen industry, I feel like I made the right decision. That new industry show on HBO, Mm. it's wild. They have like a group of associates that are like fighting for full time positions at some investment bank. I have not seen that. I have to check that out. It is actually like it makes me even thinking about it makes me break out in hives. They were so competitive. <laughs> it was so scary. There was a death. Like oh, I was wow. just like, okay, you know what? I made the right call. And so right. I, when I was in business school, I was like, all right, I need to get out of finance because that's not fun. And finance so, was the one course that almost made me not get my MBA. Like I struggled (laughs) through that. And it was like, I would be at home and I would understand it. And I'd be like, okay, I think this makes sense. And then I would take the test and it was, yeah. <laughs> just I, I just wasn't built for that, and I yeah, and so you know I you so you got an MBA, I, so you know that in business school, even in undergrad, you have to take all of the disciplines of business. Mm-hmm. So I had to take finance, I had to take accounting, and I took a marketing one on one class, and I was like, oh, okay, this is it, this is fun. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's a little flexibility, there's some storytelling, mm-hmm. but you don't get a job. Great, sign me up. Let's do that. And so that's how. I got into marketing. And so most of my career was spent in doing kind of different aspects of marketing. I've done consulting and market research. I've done the agency world where I was doing more clients. First, I was a a scary account person. Then I became (laughs) a strategist. And that was where I was when someone from Getty kind of plucked me out. I was like, I saw this job and I thought it was made up. Like, I didn't really think that there was a, this was a real job. But mm-hmm. <laughs> when I spoke to the recruiter, she was like, no, this is a real opportunity. This is like, it seemed to combine kind of these skills that I had in terms of thinking strategically and kind of pulling together disparate sets of data to tell stories, et cetera, et cetera. And my kind of personal interest in just creativity, any sort of creative expression. You know, I'm a diehard, like I, I'm a kind of amateur art snob. Like I love <laughs> design. I love film and television. So I was like, okay, I can draw on that. Nice. Um, even though I wasn't classically trained in any space, I never got a, a BFA or anything like that to bring these skills to bear in this role. And so that's kind of my very, very roundabout way of, of arriving here at Getty and They still let me in here. So that's. (laughs) You know, what's funny is I feel like a lot of us kind of fell into marketing in different ways, because, again, Mm -hmm. it's not the teacher and the lawyer and the thing that you typically hear about. Mm -hmm. For me, it was one of those things where it was just the most creative 
of all of the business disciplines. And so I act and I write and I do all of those fun things. My undergraduate degree, I dual majored in psychology and media production, which sounds insane. And people are like, that doesn't even make sense. They don't go together. But I'm like, actually, they do perfectly. They are those two together are really, truly a marketing degree. Um, so. For sure, for sure. I actually wish that I had done something in production because that would have been so cool. But I'm not going back to school. You literally could not pay me to go back to school. <laughs> to be honest with you, but a girl can dream. Yeah, yeah. I it, it depends on how I'm feeling about student loans at the time because sometimes I just you might need to defer something, so you might go <laughs> go take a summer class. <laughs> Holding my breath for some debt cancellation. Come oh, through. Yes, Otis, please. Through. Please. So you have this interesting journey into marketing, right? Mm-hmm. But you were able to transition that into something else as it relates to elevating marginalized voices. How are mm-hmm. you able to connect those two? I think it just felt natural. I think because because of the way that you have to work as a strategist, when I would have to write briefs, right? You're thinking about the audience. You're thinking about the core human truths, right? You're thinking about what are the stories that you want to tell with the creative that you're going to produce for whatever brand mm-hmm. campaign, whatever banner ad, like some social campaign, whatever that is. And I was thinking about, I had always kind of built into sort of my practice as a strategist, kind of calling those little opportunities out with my Mm -hmm. creative team. Mm -hmm. My creative team used to call me a frustrated creative very lovingly, sometimes maybe not so lovingly behind my back, but to my (laughs) lovingly. And because I would really get in there and think about, I would be very kind of pointed and directive and on casting and Mm -hmm. language and copy and being more intentional with that. So I I had already had that in me. And and that's, I think, the importance of having those voices in the room and giving them. I'm very grateful that, well, at that point in my career, I stopped asking for permission, but I had a lot of leaders who gave me carte blanche to just kind of go in, blow stuff up if I felt like it. And so that had already been in me. And so I just kind of brought that over time, over to my working Getty, like it just is, it became second nature. It became something that I was constantly asking about. And at the time I was one of the very few people of color on the creative team. Mm-hmm. And so I was asking them these questions, these really pointed questions. Well, all right. Okay. Well, if you're saying you want to focus on the Latinx community, what does that mean? Why am I only seeing, for example, very fair-skinned, long, straight hair, and an archetype, the Latin archetype when you're talking about focusing on this community. And I'll just ask questions on it to get them thinking about other aspects. And it just became, I don't know, something that I started to become known for in the right. ways and people started coming to me to for guidance on how to get it right. Because a lot of times people are just afraid or need some sort of permission structure to help them move through these things that are kind of complicated and nuanced and all of that. It's interesting because your story sounds very similar to mine. I would be in these rooms where mm-hmm. I'm the only person of color. I... Mm-hmm am the one that's looking at this stuff. And I'm like, I wonder if they realize that none of the speakers for this conference 
are people of color at all. I wonder if they realize that none of the board members are diverse. I wonder if they realize that no one in this brochure looks like anybody in this organization. And so I wound up feeling more comfortable with it when I was doing work for nonprofits. Mm-hmm. Because when you're doing work for a nonprofit, a lot of times they have smaller teams. A lot of times as a marketer, you are either a marketer of one or you're one of a small group and you just have a little bit more leadway in what mm-hmm. you do. And so I remember I was managing the marketing for this conference and they had these happy young co-eds who were smiling and drinking wine and things like that. Well, the organization, our average member was a white woman who was 45 to 55, mm-hmm. who was not a young co-ed that's happy. Inside. I mean, she might be smiling and drinking wine, but <laughs> it wasn't these young co-eds that were doing this. And so right. when I was talking to our design team, the design firm that we had hired, I was like, hey, listen, we want the people in the collateral that we're doing to look like the people that are in our organization. We need it to be more diverse and really trying to to express to them and and get them to understand the importance of it. And I remember one of the people on their team went and looked at my LinkedIn page. So I could Mm -hmm. see that she looked at LinkedIn. The next iteration of design (laughs) comps that I got had these random Black people in it. And not only were they (laughs) random, like they... Random in what way? So right. they just didn't fit. They they didn't even fit in. Right. So they looked like they were images from the 80s. Like there was one woman and she had this bouffant looking hairstyle. <laughs> and it was like, when did you find that picture? Like, how did you dig that relic up? Right. Yeah. Then there was another woman and she had like her hair was just it was supposed to be slicked back in a ponytail. But like the back was just down. And it was like, why would you? You know, what I mean? like the images just didn't fit. Right. It was like. And so for them, when they saw my picture and they saw that I was black, they thought I was like, well, just throw a throw a Negro at it, throw a black person at it. That'll make that'll solve the diversity issue that she's having. That's not what I meant. You know, and that's also not what I said, because I very clearly told them, hey, we need to make sure that this looks like our audience. This is what our demographics look like. And so I'm glad that now it seems like people are (laughs) not as obtuse when it comes to that in terms of just putting a black person on a a picture and understanding that diversity is far more than that. What are your thoughts on that? What have you seen over time (laughs) as you've done this and as you've seen new images start to come in from new contributors? Yeah, I think it's a journey that we're still on. And I think what has changed for me is that a lot more people are willing to interrogate their current practices and really try to actively disrupt them. I see that there's a lot more visibility of often, actually, there's a lot more visibility of Black people than there are other people of color. Mm -hmm. They prioritize amplifying Black voices much more easily, much more readily. I think because that conversation is much farther ahead Mm -hmm. um, in the minds of kind of this corporate, this brand, this marketing and advertising space. And so you see that you get this kind of, there's this illusion of, of progress because Black people are more visible. But yet when you look at, when you kind of drill down into it, what 
are what type of Black people are being sort of elevated in those images? Are they super light skinned? Right. (laughs) see hair type texture? Are they very thin? Are they cisgender? Are they able-bodied? Are they... So I think that you still have this reliance for any sort of marginalized identity to you kind of pick one aspect and you say, okay, I'm going to include this and I'm going to check that box and I'm done. And then you kind of gravitate towards the dominant, other dominant aspects within that group. So if if you are going to choose a black person, you're going to choose someone who's cis or light skinned or still show that nuclear family right. or whatever. And so that's where I think we are, where also we're starting to realize that it's a lot more complicated. Mm-hmm. And I think a hard pill for someone who is a marketer to swallow that, oh, I can't just go in and just say, I'm going to insert some black faces here and we're going to be done and that's it. Right. That's where you get that brochure that you saw. It's really complicated. There are these systems and these structures and these systems of oppression have marginalized so many aspects of identity. It's very heteronormative, very patriarchal, very ableist, very, you know what I mean? Right. Um, So we need to think about kind of blowing all of those systems up and bringing that into the work. And I think that is still something that we maybe as an industry has it is still kind of struggling with or maybe coming. And some of it, it's a very hard thing to do. So one of the things that when I look at the content from Mocha Stock and looking at things that I want to bring into our library, I think about the things that keep me up at night are like. How do I, for example, show a person who's autistic without showing them in a way that's very stereotypical? You know what I mean? How do I show them and show who they are and show that they are, you know what I mean? Show that there is something that's unique and special and different and make them feel included without Mm -hmm. making them feel further marginalized by stereotyping them in media. That one is tricky. How do you show the, for lack of a better word, the disabilities or different abilities that are invisible, right? But also still make those people feel seen and heard and understood and valued and like they are still a part of society and make it feel, no, because there are things like somebody has a blog article and the blog article is very specifically talking about someone who has bipolar disorder. How do you Mm -hmm. show that? You know what I mean? How do you show that? And how do you represent that in a way that's very authentic and that is honoring the fact that it's not just, oh, I'm sitting here looking sad. You know what I mean? And those are the things that I don't think people think about when they think about authentic representation. They think, oh, you're just trying to make a big deal out of nothing. And it's all about race or it's all about this. And there's so much more to it. And I wish people would understand that. For sure. I think it's it causes a, a lot of discomfort for people because there isn't a straightforward answer and that it's not going to look the way that they assume it needs to look. But like even by virtue of let's just take all of the representations that we have had for the last hundred years. Mm-hmm. Right. You still show. So you sh- would show or center a white cis gender, able-bodied man, and that's it, right? And so, and they, in their reality of their lived experience, might come from all different walks of life. 
they may like they may have uh, come from a small town in I don't know Ohio and also come or may come from a small town and oh I mean I'm sorry a big city like New York they may have some sort of learning disability and still are being pictured and yet you're not focusing on the disability but by virtue of them being at the center mm-hmm. they're there and they're highly visible mm-hmm. and that wasn't given a second thought. And yet we instinctively feel like, okay, by if we're going to include a person who is autistic, for example, we need to make sure we show that they're autistic for who is that for the benefit right. of right. For the- of a person with autism or is it for the benefit of the person without autism so that we know that we are showing that a person that has autism yeah right so like so I think about it's really to me this movement toward especially within stock which is a really interesting place to uh, space to play in with these ideas of casting real people Mm -hmm. and that's something that we've been doing so much more uh, we've always tried our best to do it. We work with our contributors like um, and we say your friends, your family, like try and cast real couples, don't real families, because that comes through in the imagery that you see. You right. can tell when someone is genuinely related to the uh, to one another, genuinely a friend group is a genuine friend group. And so casting people who have autism in who really do have autism and just letting them go and live their life and not focusing on their quote unquote difference or disability, just showing them living their lives because that's how they do. It's not like they, you know, they're right. from you and I, maybe they see the world slightly differently or experience the world slightly differently, but they go to work have love and have friendships and communities and all of those things and just really taking these same scenarios and placing them in it and just knowing that you've casted a person with autism. Right. And so we're trying to be more intentional about things like that. It's the same with like gender and different gender expressions and like, you know, representing the trans community, for example, moving beyond kind of these stereotypes, these performative stereotypes for cisgender people so that we know, oh my goodness, this person is different from us. So you be that kind of visualization of a trans woman putting on makeup. Like and that that being the emphasis. Mm -hmm. Or or a trans man as he gets dressed in the morning. You know, that sort of but we're moving beyond that. Like let's show trans people having fully realized lived experiences at home, at work, whatever that is, right. whatever, whatever they're interested in and not necessarily transness. Yeah. And also keeping in mind that they're putting on makeup is a part of that experience as well. Right. And so not negating the fact that that's also part of the experience, but just not centering the imagery on that part of the experience as if it's a soul thing that that is related to being trans right yeah and and but maybe also yes and maybe it's also not a part of the experience for every trans person right right so just say i think also what i think where you uncover that is actually having conversations Mm -hmm. with what do you do you Mm -hmm. know what is how what's a day in the life Mm -hmm. of sequoia 
Like, well, how do you, when you wake up in the morning, how do you spend your mornings? Right. Where do you work? And really having these really intimate conversations. And that was also something that we started pushing a lot of our contributors to doing, especially when we um, launched Project Show Us, because you had to actually be, um, it was featuring femmes and non-binary people. And we also had femmes and non-binary people behind the camera. And so what, it, and they, and the, the subjects were able to, the people who graciously sat for us were able to share what they wanted the captions to look like. Mm-hmm. And so in order to do that, uncover that, you actually had to have a, have a conversation about where do they want to be seen? How do they want to be represented in this space? What are their lives like day to day? What feels natural versus what feels kind of very staged and not so natural? And so we've started helping our contributor community kind of build that muscle to have more meaningful conversations to create more authentic and realistic content for com- any sort of community that they're reflecting back to the world. I love that. I think yeah. that's great. And I think it really comes down to what you said earlier. And I think what a lot of us always say is that it's really important that everybody have a seat at the table, right? Mm -hmm. It's really important that everybody be a part of the conversation because Mm -hmm. how are you going to talk about me and you don't know me? Mm -hmm. How how are we going to move forward with authenticity if if we're not aware (laughs) of what authenticity even is? in situations. And that authenticity comes from having real authentic people who have those lived experiences be in those spaces. And why not? Why wouldn't we have them there? Right? For sure. For sure. I think one thing I always tell our sort of clients and the partners that we work with is that a lot of this work requires some really brave, uncomfortable conversations and Mm -hmm. like really comfortable with being uncomfortable and ask questions and feel okay doing that and making sure that you create a space where people feel comfortable sharing. I am not, I can't speak. I check a lot of boxes when it comes to like impacted identities in my, in my black body, in my Latinx body, in my queer body and so on and so forth. Right. But in my immigrant body, that lived experience. Right. But I can't speak for everything. I still cisgender. I'm still able-bodied. I'm still light-skinned. You know what I mean? I'm still these other things that I might walk around with not having those experiences. And so what I have to do sometimes is like, all right, well, I don't know what I don't know. Let me center people who do. That's really interesting that you bring that up. And I think for a lot of us who live at this intersection, it really puts us in this space where we're not only able to see things differently, but we have to just because we have to stand up for ourselves. And in standing up for ourselves, we wind up standing up for others. And it winds up being this whole experience, like what we talked about with our jobs and marketing, where you're the one that's raising your hand saying, hey, guys, uh, not sure if you noticed, but with being a person that's at this, all of these different intersections, how has that impacted what you do? And do you see that? having been a benefit to what you do? Or do you think that there are ways that that's marginalized you or impacted what you do in a negative way? Um, Never marginalized me. I know, well, I never really let, allowed it to, I should say. I think that definitely my experience 
I would probably more like more than likely be in a position in a higher position. Um, I'd probably be paid more if I was a white man, if I was a man in general. I think that there's that. But I don't really spend my life or my time thinking about what I don't have. I think I spend a lot of my time more time thinking about what I do. Mm-hmm. And I think what it's given me, my experiences and existing at all of these kind of intersections of identity is made me curious and maybe question things that are received as wisdom, right? Things that are, we've always done it this way. Why? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I think that Black people are some of the most creative people on the planet Earth because we've had to exist in figuring out how to, like we've had to figure out how to survive in a society that wasn't built for us, that was built actually explicitly to subjugate us and keep us out of certain things. And yet here we are, we are, miracles. Mm-hmm. And I think that I think that, that sort of kind of adaptability, that kind of being able to be scrappy, that being able to kind of blow stuff up, but then put it all back together, being able to think outside of the box, all of those lived experiences kind of you know, my existence in, in these marginalized identities have allowed me to think that way, mm-hmm. and to not be limited by kind of this very linear thinking that often if you've only, you've lived your life in the dominant culture of like, this is how it's always been done. You don't really get the benefit, the kind of glory and and the beauty of seeing how, what else is possible out there when you don't have access to certain things. And so it's been a great, yeah. Let me ask this. So along those same lines, right? We talk about the dominant culture and we talk about the need for authenticity in representation, right? So mm-hmm. if I am a white man or a white woman, mm-hmm. either one, and I know that we represent the vast majority of the United States, right? Mm-hmm. Population. And I see ads that have white people in them. Is that not authentic? Because it's what represents the majority of the United States. Why are we so focused on adding people of color in a number of our pieces are making sure that representation is so broad when an argument might and could be made that authentic representation truly is the dominant culture since they are dominant. What would you say to someone who had that particular argument? That's an interesting question that I kind of hate, not because you asked the question. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think it's an interesting question. I don't, I think, that I don't necessarily see why, what a bad, what's, what's so negative about creating space for other, other representations, right? I don't see, we, there's so many other communities that are interesting, that are, whose stories aren't being told and are being erased. It's not to this, my progress a community, a marginalized community's progress isn't to, isn't to your detriment. It's just kind of taking this yes and approach that we can have room for all of these things. And like operating from this place of lack is a big habit of the people who are in the dominant culture often. Well, what does this take away from me if I give space, if I cede the floor to someone else? 
okay, why are you thinking in that way? Why can't you say, well, maybe what does this give me if I'm giving opportunity and seating the floor and creating space for other voices? Right. What value does this add to a situation when I can interact with people around the world who have different experiences than me, right? Right. Different cultures and values and thoughts and it's so boring. I well, Life is so boring if you're just talking to the same people, seeing the same people, doing the same things for hundreds and hundreds of years. Like what, again, operating from this pace of lack is not, I, again, I personally, that's not part of my ethos, not part of my, my value system. I really am, oper- I want to operate from a place of sort of abundance. And again, what does this give me? What does this give the world? And so I would challenge the person who asks that, why are you thinking that the success of others detracts from, or the inclusion of others detracts from some sort of value that you experience in the world? In our last episode, we talked with filmmaker Kim Williams, and she was saying that she's really unapologetically Black in everything that she does. She creates content for Black women, specifically Black Gen X women. And she had no qualms about that. I noticed on some of your social media presence, you have artwork that says Amplify Black Voices, right? Mm -hmm. And I asked her a similar question. When we say things like Amplify Black Voices, Could an argument be made that we're trying to, we are being biased against people who are not Black by saying amplify Black voices? Not necessarily. I think that, again, why are we, let's operate from a place of abundance rather than lack, okay? Mm -hmm. So when you say, I want to specifically center Black voices or amplify Black voices, it isn't, I want to decenter this community or that community. I just want to create the space for more Black voices to be heard, to be celebrated, to be lifted up, to be loved on, to really exist in this world. There's been historically, I mean, I'm serious ills against the Black community in particular. And this country was based, created on the subjugation specifically on Black people, Black bodies. So when we talk about centering Black voices or amplifying Black voices or amplifying Black issues in general, it is to the benefit of every marginalized community, to be quite honest with you, Mm -hmm. because all of the other shenanigans (laughs) from that same well. Right. And I think that really interrogating, I would challenge that thinking, that framing and interrogating why you think that the abundance that I'm trying to seek for myself and for people in my community, how that challenges or takes away from the abundance that you exist in. Right. I I definitely agree with that. I think it's funny that you bring that because you think of, and I won't name names, but certain actors and actresses in the last few years who've come under fire for saying things against the Black community. So, I don't know. So, I'm trying to think. You don't have to name names, but we'll let So, you have Hispanic actresses, for example, who have said, oh, well, Black people are, why are we focusing on just Black? We need to make sure that Latinx or Latina actresses or Latino actors or need to also have an opportunity, right? And they make, sometimes it, has been said that they've made it this black versus brown thing instead of it just being let's all fight for <laughs> for a bigger piece of, instead of trying to take my little piece of the pie let's just focus on the fact that none of us have the whole pie right let's just focus on 
all of us trying to be included and not take away the little bit of inclusion that this side has seemed to get. So I know what you're talking about now. And, uh, <laughs> I, I take issue with, with those comments that from those particular individuals for a lot of reasons. Firstly, the Latinx community, like that's an ethnic identifier, it's not a racial identifier. So the Latinx community does also include Black bodies. And so um, Black Latinx people, hello, hi, nice to meet you, exist in the world and exist in, in these spaces that are also being elevated and yet they're being erased out. So mm-hmm. I'm thinking about Jarrell Jerome being Dominican, AF and yet and being nominated for an uh, an Emmy and some unnamed some actor who will remain nameless saying, well, we're getting all these black nominations, but where are all these Latinx nominations? There's a lot within the Latinx community where they other black Latinx people. Right. And so I think that that's a problem. And I uh, 1000% agree with you. Like, why can't we, why are we fighting amongst ourselves for these little kind of these scraps? Why don't we talk about who's actually creating and giving us this pie to begin with that, uh, and uh, this scraps to begin with? Right. Why are the progress of something like Black Panther is what opens the door for something like Crazy Rich Asians. Or, right. You know, like those right. things, those things, they, they kind of feed and overlap and relate. They're all related. Right. And so now you have this dearth of Asian American storytelling that's happening at the same time, for example, as this more green light, green lighting for these big block, but from these big Hollywood studios for black storytelling and Latinx storytelling. I so I think that there is definitely something that we as people of color, people who are not sitting at the center, still not in the dominant voices. There's something to be, there's a bigger problem with this industry. There's a problem in an industry that doesn't nominate for the Golden Globes, for example, I May Destroy You. You know what I mean? There's a problem for, or Minari, right? Minari was Stephen Young's, he was not nominated for anything in the Golden Globes, as I understand it. So like, there's still a problem in this industry and we need to talk about this bigger problem where we're just constantly centering white voices and white creativity to the exclusion of others. And so- that's that's what we're you're worried about the wrong thing, sweetheart. Like you really are. So that's right. And it's interesting too, because I think the other day or a couple of weeks ago now, I saw this commercial and it was, I'll just say Hispanic, for lack of a better term, a, a woman, and it was a major market commercial. It wasn't a commercial that was on a Spanish network. It was just a regular, it was her just being a regular human being doing regular human being things, going out shopping, buying regular stuff for her family. It wasn't, oh, let me show this woman buying Goya beans. It was just a regular human doing regular human things. And I loved it so much because I know regular women who just go out and do regular women things. They're not always relegated to, oh, let me make tamales for my family. And when we see people a lot of times in commercials, very specifically, or in TV, it's so relegated to a Hispanic experience and not just a life experience. And I think it's important to see that as well. I'm not saying that we shouldn't show that, but I'm just saying we shouldn't relegate somebody's experience to one singular part of who they are. Yeah, I think there's a lot of that across different aspects of identity. I I also think like when companies take on 
quote unquote Hispanic marketing. And what I, why I don't use the word Hispanic is because it's a kind of acknowledgement of colonizer kind of, first of all, not all Latinx people, Latino people are of Hispanic descent. There's indigenous bodies. I want to be very inclusive of that. So it's very intentional when I'm using that language. But also they kind of show this like one dimension, right? Mm -hmm. Like only, so there's about 60, you want to say 69% of Latino people in the United States are of Mexican descent. So either kind of first gen or second gen, third gen, et cetera. The rest (laughs) are... Puerto Ricans, Cubans, Venezuelans, Dominicans, Salvadorians, etc. So like there's such a uh, huge mix of Latino people in this country that aren't included and yet and not every Latino person eats tamales, you know what right. I mean? Like, so even the, the there's this kind of stereotype right. in that, right? And the other thing that they do with not just the Latinx community, but Black community as well. It's like, well, I'm going to remember that time in like the 2000s. I feel like it just stopped maybe five years ago where every time they showed a Black person, it needed to be like some sort of rap jingle situation. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like, what? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, like, and I can't I even say five years ago. Because even, and you know what? To be fair, I was about to name a commercial, but it is my one of my absolute favorite commercials. It was the one where... <laughs> doing the uh can't even think the craig mack flavor in your ear <laughs> commercial when she was about uh-huh. it was a commercial where the girl is sitting in the car and she's like uh-huh. doing these rap moves yeah, or whatever yeah, yeah, yeah. and then yeah, you're yeah. hearing flavor in the flavor in your ear and then the guy uh-huh. comes up and walks and you find out she's about to go give a presentation uh-huh. and she was just kind of getting in her zone for that <laughs> yeah, 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 so, yeah yeah well that's fine but, like, but not everything. It doesn't need to be on everything. Every, it was like everything. Mm-hmm. I, remember the Mary J. Blige spicy chicken, the chicken sandwich or whatever that that was for Burger King she did? It was like, anyway, she. it was kind of <laughs> like, they took Mary, poor Mary, yeah. it was just like, and they made this like, quote unquote, hip hop jingle. Anyway, right. it was a mess. Yeah. But you know what? I, we know how I, to enjoy things without rap music. I get it. Yeah, I completely that's, that's agree. Saying. Yeah. <laughs> The, the point, the point being is like they feel and it, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier is like you don't nec- you do not need to beat it over. The- Who is this for? Right. If you're going to well, kind of do these take these cues, these visual cues, these sonic cues so that you know that it's black or you right. know that person visually is autistic or you know that this person is um, Mexican or whatever like you don't need to do that you can just to your point show human beings being human beings and that just be that and that's okay one thing that I have a question that I have uh, you mentioned using Latinx and I so you know a couple years ago there was like that big push to start using the term Latinx and I understand why then recently I've heard people say, well, we don't want to be called Latinx. We want to be called this. And then you hear, and that happens not just in that community, but like in so many things that like there are black people. Well, we don't want to be called people of color. We want to be called black because people of color is everybody. And that's not just us. Or we don't want to be called black. We want to be called African-American. So for people who are outside of these groups, sometimes it can feel like you're walking on eggshells to just try to get it right. I have a couple thoughts on that. One, I feel like, call me Sequoia, right? (laughs) First of all. Um, Mm -hmm. But what advice would you give someone who really truly is 
trying to get it right. Like they don't have any ill intention. They don't have mean any harm, but they just feel like it gives them anxiety because they feel like no matter what they call somebody Hispanic, that's like, no, we're Latinx. They call somebody black. And it's like, no, we're people of color. Like, how do you, what would, what advice would you give to that, that person on the receiving end? And then what things as, I mean, we're not monoliths, right? Um, but what things can we do as well in this process to make people feel, I don't know. I don't even want to ask that question because it's like, how do I make somebody feel better? Right. It's not for me to make somebody feel better, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. But do you know what yeah. I mean? Like, I don't mm-hmm. want people to feel like they're walking on eggshells to try to get it right around me. So how can I meet them halfway without also feeling like I'm putting the onus of something on myself that doesn't belong to me? And then how can they what can they do to, I guess, not feel anxiety about calling somebody the right thing or, or being <laughs> doing the right thing? Well, Google is free. So <laughs> I think that a lot of times I am again, I, I have already mentioned that I don't I sit at a lot of different intersections of identity, but there's certain identities I don't sit within certain communities I don't I I, I I'm not a part of, I'm not a part of the trans community for example or I'm not non-binary I I'm cisgender and so what I do I can actually listen for a second because I know what cisgender is but there might be someone mm-hmm. who's listening who doesn't understand so would you mind just briefly sharing what that means so that somebody who might this might be their first time really trying to understand that word might know what it means yeah. So, I mean, gender in, in general, gender is a social construct. It is not a biological construct, right? So gender overall, I have to kind of take a zoom out a little bit <laughs> overall, that gender are kind of norms, characteristics, expressions, clothing, et cetera. You can have your gender identity and gender expression that sits within that, that are commonly associated with the two genders, with the two genders, women and with two gender identities, women and men. That's the socialized understanding of gender. Your biological sex, okay, is what you, your kind of all of your organs and things like that. And granted, I don't, I'm not an academic, I am not an expert, but as I understand it, your biological sex is something completely separate from your, your gender. And so when you are, when we are all born, we are assigned a certain gender based on our sex organs, right? So we, and if you, your gender identity, whether or not you align with that gender you were assigned based on the sex organs you were born with is either you identify with that. If you, if you are in alignment with that, you are cisgender. If you are not in alignment with that, maybe you have some gender variants. Maybe you are non-binary if you don't want to ascribe to any sort of gender at all. Maybe you are trans, and there's varying degrees of transness. Again, I am not an expert, but there, you that means that you don't, you do not feel in alignment with the sex that you are, were. I'm sorry, the gender that you were assigned at birth. And so, when I say that I am cisgender, it means my gender identity and the gender I was assigned at birth feel is completely in alignment. Thank you. Of course, I forgot the question. What? <laughs> where were we? Oh, the language and getting comfortable with that. Yes. Okay, Google. Firstly, so if I don't feel so, thinking even about transness and the language around 
transness, right? Mm -hmm. I remember watching these things change in real time, watching vocabulary and language actually be available, made available, kind of leave academia and bring it, come into the mainstream. Because like cisgender has been a term that's lived in spaces for a long time, but it didn't enter our culture, our lexicon uh, until maybe a few years ago. Right. And so what I did when that was happening, I went to good old Google and <laughs> I said, what's going on? What, what do I need to get right? What do I need to change? And what, what parts of my vocabulary do I need to do away with right. to be more inclusive of the trans community, for example? Right. When I was writing about disabilities and I struggled with, do I say different abilities? Do I say differently able? Do I say this or that? I went to good, good old Google <laughs> and I read a lot on from the community themselves, from academics and tried to absorb as much as I can. And I made a decision on what language I personally was going to use, a language that is person first, that says person with a disability. So person who has autism, for example, person who, is, you know what I mean? So to center the human. Right. I did not go to school for this. I just went to good old Google. And so when Latinx was starting to become a term that had entered the mainstream, which again was coming from more of an academia world and in, in an attempt to sort of neutralize a very, very gendered language, I went to Google and I said, here, first of all, Hispanic is a new term. It's only been something that was around from like the early 80s, as I understand it. So it's not like it's something that's existed for ages and ages and ages. Right. And it was decided upon right. as a group, you know what I mean? And they said that this is where we're going to go. And now Latinx and centering Latin identity and, and, and kind of that decolonize, this attempt to decolonize language is where is what I learned about when I started studying that. I also know because I cover the Americas that in Latam, Latinx is not used as commonly. However, there is an, att an attempt to gender, to neutralize language by using um, E instead of A or O. You say todes instead of todas or todos. So it doesn't, you know what I mean? So Interesting. There, uh, I hadn't heard that. Exactly. So Google, yeah. <laughs> and that's what I'm saying. So I think yeah. to answer the question, it's what do you want? How do you want to participate and show up for these communities? And so I have decided that I'm going to do my resolute best, right, to get it right. And I'm going to do some research and I'm going to make an informed decision. And then I am not going to act like I have marbles in my mouth when I use these words. I'm going to say it with my chest. So what often happens like or whatever, you know what I mean? There's mm -hmm. kind of like hesitation mm -hmm. that people have because it's new for them. I feel more confident because I'm informed. And so I say it with my chest. I'm not mealy mouthed when I use certain terms. Mm -hmm. I'm confident because I have done the Googles that I can. And I didn't put the burden on a person with that identity. Yes. To explain it to me. Yeah. I think that's a big part of it is that if you say that this is important to you, just like any other thing that you say is important to you, you do the work, right? Mm -hmm. You do the work of learning these things, whether it's self-taught, whether it's having a conversation with a person and then keeping in mind that none of us are a monolith, right? So I might decide, you know what? I understand why people are saying Latinx. So I will decide that I'm going to say Latinx. And if that offends someone, I can know that I didn't say it in an order to offend her. I can understand her offense. And I can say, you know what? I'm so sorry. I did not mean to offend you. That was not my intention. Here's why, if she wants to have a conversation, but I'm not coming out like you coming at it from a place of just 
knowing this was a decision, it was a conscious decision and it was a decision based on information that I had and that that's what it was, you know what I mean? Versus yeah. like you said, kind of walking around, like feeling like you're on eggshells sometimes feels more offensive than just making a statement. <laughs> yeah, I don't even announce it. And I, I will also just say, I guess would challenge anyone who thinks I was trying to preempt their offense. Nine times out of 10, no one is going to be like, this is so, if you've done your research, you've made an informed decision, you're saying this confidently, often you're going to get the term right. And even there are people in the uh, in the Latino community, Latinx community, et cetera, that do not use the term Latinx, but they will not tell you, I find this offensive. Like, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? I've been on a panel where I'm the only person, I'm a, a panel full of other Latinx people, and I might be one of maybe two people, other people, if there's a panel of five that are using the term Latinx. Other people might use Hispanic. Other people might refer to themselves if they're a woman as Latina and be done with it. And it's not a big deal. We don't need to have this big to do about it. It's just the choice we've all made. And so I think that stop worrying. Like if you've done your Googles and you're doing your best to show up for that community, then that's all that anyone can ask of you. I love it. I think that's such a great point. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you this. When you think about all of the work that you've done in this space, all of the work that you've done in the creative space as it relates to diversity and supporting and uplifting marginalized voices, what do you want people to think about that? What's the legacy, the lasting legacy that you want to have when it, as it relates to the work that you've done? Hmm. Well, I'm not finished, but if lightning struck me tomorrow, knock wood. Um, What I would like for folks to think about is that I never stopped asking questions. I never stopped challenging receives wisdom, the status quo, the we've been doing this for however many years we're going to keep on doing this, that I took my platform as part of this capitalistic machine and did my part, did the best that I could to make a difference. I... Yeah, I, I, I hope that people will say, remember that and remember that nothing on everything in this world was designed and given to us. And so we have every right to kind of redesign it, recast it in a way that is more expansive, more beautiful, more loving, more gracious, more, more abundant for all of these others who were not always at the center. So love that. Mm-hmm. When people think of Tristan Norman. What do you want your lasting legacy to be? Troublemaker. <laughs> um, troublemaker. Definitely for sure. I have always you been You didn't even have to think about that one. You're like, yep, here it is. I am resident troublemaker. I get on the, our all company meetings and I'm like, hey, thank you for letting me have the space, even though I, all I do is make trouble and, and <laughs> I hope that people remember that I always made shit things up. I'm definitely not afraid of strapping a hand grenade to all of your things lovingly. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's uh, like the late John Lewis said, good trouble. That's yes. All I'm, so. yes. Nice. Mm-hmm. And anything else that you'd like to share? Any other parts of the conversation that maybe we didn't touch on that you thought were important? Um, I don't think so. I feel like what did we co- we covered so many things. We covered a lot. I feel really great about the conversation. I think people are going to find a lot of value out of it. So I, I think we're good if you are. Where can people reach you and learn about what you're up to and offer support for the different things that you have going on? 
Well, I'm not really, I don't have a professional social situation going <laughs> on. Okay. I'm just not one of those quite yet, but I'm definitely on LinkedIn. I also write a lot of pieces on um, creativeinsights.gettingimages.com. I do some work on Medium, which um, I've written about Black photographers and, and the importance of the, the gaze from that view on, on Medium and on the Momentum, um, which is Medium's imprint for celebrating Black voices. And yeah, so you can find me there as well, Tristan Norman. So yeah. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. And I love this conversation. It was fun. <laughs> I'm glad it was fun for me, too. It was a pleasure. Yeah, we're going to have to have you back sometime. And we're going to talk about different things. And especially as as we have different movement in our industry, because I feel like there's always a lot going on and always different things to to look at. So thank you. And thank you for the work that you do. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much, so much for having me. <laughs> well, that's it, folks. We are done with another episode of Diversity V Life. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on all of your favorite social media channels, as long as they're Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at, <laughs> at Diversity V Like. If you have any questions for Tristan, you can ask them using hashtag Diversity V Like, and we'll make sure she gets an answer back for you. So, everybody, until next week.